Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right. From the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station, we have a great program for you today. Today, we have State Representative Jasmine Crockett. Uh, she's actually running for U.S. Congress. Did you know that? To replace the, the venerable Eddie Bernice Johnson. Uh, she's going to talk about what it is to serve your constituencies, etc., we also have an article that I, I want to cover in the Houston Chronicle. They're doing a great piece about how religious leaders are ripping off the taxpayers and causing us all to pay more for school taxes, etc. But in that article on the part one, they did something that I call subliminal racism. Whether it is intentional or not is immaterial, but it is something that is codified into the minds of many that I want to explore. We cover a whole lot of other stories, so hang tight because I think you're going to enjoy what we're doing here. Uh, again, moving the message forward. Please, folks, don't forget, uh, do whatever you can. We are having like a silent donation time now. So kpft.org, help us out. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash right. On YouTube Live at politicsunright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nour nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. Let me get to the Houston Chronicle article. Why are POC so upset? Why are black people so upset? Why are Latinos so upset? I'll tell you why. There's an article that came out yesterday. People wonder why is it, you know, I've had people all over the place. They've called me the N-word, you know, doing this kind of work. N-word, all kinds of things that I don't let it bother me. In fact, I try to befriend them. I try to see where their heads are, where they're coming from. I try to be the person that's going to look beyond because I understand most of this stuff is generated by ignorance and so forth. So anyhow, I read this article. It's a Houston Chronicle article. The title was, Same Texas religious leader or some Texas religious leaders live in lavish tax-free estates 
thanks to obscure laws. So we know who the, the rich churches are mostly. And again, I don't want to be racial here, but in this case, I must. Most of these big mega rich churches, yeah, there are a lot of black and Latino mega churches as well. But most of these mega churches, you know who the culprits are, and they take all these great tax advantages. And here in Texas, the Houston Chronicle decided that it was going to do a story. And not only a story, a series on the issue. So I was excited. I'm not one of those church-going people who lavish themselves or praises the church. I know the church has a lot of evil in it, right? So anyhow, I'm reading the article and the guy did a great job. He went to the tax assessor collectors. He figured out what homes were not paying taxes, which preachers lived in mansions and all these great things. And it's like, wow, that is great. He's doing the right thing. And he's not naming preachers per se, but he's naming organizations, etc., etc., etc. Right? And then it happened, right? When it is time to give a representative example of a church pastor taking taking advantage of the tax system. In other words, what is commonly known to what everybody wants people to believe is, you know, living on the dole. Who is the first by name preacher on the negative side? I digress. The article first decides to praise two preachers. I, I want to read this, this part of the article. Remember, the article is talking a lot about these guys that pay tax, don't pay their taxes. They live in these big mansions and gated communities. These are all preachers. And in Texas, they have a parsonage law that they live by that allows the pastors not to have to pay taxes on their residences, etc. So they build mega mansions with your mega dollars and your mega tax breaks. So here's how it goes now. This passage says it all. It doesn't look racist. It doesn't look like they're picking stuff. But when you look at it in the aggregate, the subliminal message that goes out is which preachers are on the dole. And it carries out the stereotype. And I want you guys to tell me if you don't see it. Look at this. Everybody know who Olstein is? Olstein is, Olstein is that mega preacher in Texas, has this prosperity gospel, makes a lot of money. He's the guy who didn't open the door when the hurricane hit until he was embarrassed into opening the door. By the way, I do like his messages when he starts talking a lot about uh, prosperity stuff. He has some good messages. But again, preacher, Osteen, he has a big problem. And the other one is Hagee from San Antonio. Hagee, we all know, is a, I don't want to call him a racist, but you know, Hagee's a guy who hate homosexuals, who hate everybody else and has a lot of other problems. But that's who this article decided to highlight as the ones that are good in paying tax. I want to read the article. Now, I just needed to give some context there. It says the following. Well-off religious organizations that clearly have the means to afford their taxes don't have to seek the exemption. Lakewood Church did not ask the Harris County appraiser for a tax break on the 15,000 square foot residence of the state's most famous prosperity gospel preacher, Joel Olstein. His annual tax bill comes to $218,000 a year, according to the county. Olstein, who hasn't taken a salary since 2004, believes it's important for donors to know all their money goes to the church, said the brother-in-law, Don Olaf. He could take the parsonage break, Olaf said, but he pays his property taxes, just like he's supposed to do. Property records also show that San Antonio Cornerstone Church didn't seek an exemption for any clergy residences in Beer County. Appraisals records show its well-known spiritual leader, John Hagee, 
pays $42,000 annually in property taxes. A spokesman said the matter was personal and declined to comment, but he pays his taxes. So here, these two controversial white pastors, they pay their taxes on their property taxes. But let's continue. But Harris County Appraisal District documents show New Light Church World Outreach and Worship Centers pay no taxes on its 25,000 square foot mansion in spring perched on the shore of a private lake and occupied by its high-profile leader, Ivy Hilliard. The 11.8 lot includes three hot tubs, two fountains, and a swimming pool. Who else, uh, who else did they pick on? Let me see. Two controversial white preachers they lift up as being good tax-paying preachers. His name is, uh, como se llama? Ivan Ujueta, devoted to use mastering. He didn't pay his property taxes. So the two that they highlighted for paying their property taxes, two controversial white preachers, but when they're wanting to show preachers living extravagantly without paying their taxes, they chose Hilliard and Ulueta. I wonder, did they check on the Second Baptist Church, which has several mega churches in the area and whose pastor hates paying taxes, is a great supporter of the Republican Party, and is trying to eliminate taxes altogether? Did they consider checking on that? I doubt it. I doubt it. But that is what I'm talking about. It's always, whenever they're making these cases, in as much as POCs are not the protagonists of all the deceit, are not the protagonists of the ones spending the money or causing the most pain, somehow they're going to be the ones that are highlighted. The same thing occurred when we talk about uh, the, the coronavirus. They stopped traffic from all of Southern Africa, not just South Africa, but all these other countries that have the uh, Mycoran uh, strain. Not a problem. You can still come to the United States. It's always easier to hit the POCs, right? Forget this picture here. Check it out on the screen, folks. That is the Ugandan activist who was out there with the Norwegian activist and, and, and four others. When the AP reported that there were these youths out there to defend the climate, the top picture is what everybody saw. Unbeknownst to them, cropped out was that Ugandan girl who works very hard in the climate movement, just like Trondenda. Think about that. So... One of the titles of the art of the, the piece today was Our Media Creates Racist. And I really mean that. A lot of people are infer much from what they hear on the media. And when the media does things like this, I mean, it, it seems subtle. It doesn't seem like it's something that is really there, but it is there. It is the subliminal messages that are sent. Climate change, fighters for fight climate change. We are going to make climate better. We have the youth fighting. And they don't know. A lot of African youths are in there too, including this Ugandan girl, Nakete. I think it's Nakete is her name. But we don't hear about them. And when they're in, in Switzerland or Davos or wherever they were taking pictures together, when it was time for the eight, Vanessa Nakrate, thank you very much, Nakate. Thank you very much, Rodney. When it was time for the picture to go out for the world to see, they cropped her out. What did the reporter at the Houston Chronicle do? They cropped them out. They cropped two religious guys who have a problem and lift them up as being the supporters and defenders of paying their taxes. And when it was time to show two 
of who two who didn't pay their taxes. They showed a Latino and they showed an African American. Now they don't come out and they don't have to say anything. What's in your mind is is that message that has been promoted to you over and over and over again. POCs on the dole. Others upstanding, taking care of business. It's not quite evident. You don't see it. They don't have to come out and tell it to you. It's the same thing that they did when uh, the, the former leader of the Republican Party said, we don't use the N-words anymore. We just use phrases that codify who these people are. That's all we do now. Maywood says, unfortunately, that's only too true, Egberto. It may not be intentional, but the net effect is the same. Let me tell you right here and there for the, these reporters at the Chronicle, it was intentional. And let me tell you what I mean by intentional. They wanted their article to have faces to preachers that people could recognize as doing wrong. And in order to do that, they decided to show a Latino and a black in as much as all the wealthy Preachers in Harris County, the vast majority, don't look like Ulueta or Hillian. It's just that simple. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. Right now, the big issue is on abortion, is on a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to control her own body. We can talk and talk and talk and talk. But Lawrence O'Donnell said something that I didn't quite know yesterday. We got a very conservative Supreme Court and the people who are going to be screwed the most by this conservative court are people in red states. The people who claim they wanted that, that Supreme Court are the ones that are going to pay the price, the results of having that conservative Supreme Court. Check this out. The Republican side of the argument in the Supreme Court did not use the word liberty. The opponents of abortion on the Supreme Court today argued that because the word abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution, the Supreme Court should have no role in establishing abortion laws. That should be left entirely to the states. To be clear, you're not arguing that the court somehow has the authority to itself uh, prohibit abortion or that this court has the authority to order the states to prohibit abortion, as I understand it, correct? Correct, Your Honor. As I understand it, you're arguing that the Constitution's silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion. In other words, that the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. Is that accurate? Right. That provoked Senator Elizabeth Warren today to say that Congress should pass a law establishing the principles of Roe versus Wade as the law of the land in statute. Senator Warren, a former Harvard Law professor, will join us in our discussion of this case tonight. If any combination of the three Supreme Court justices appointed by the two presidents Bush 
And the three Supreme Court justices appointed by Donald Trump decide to overturn Roe versus Wade and make each state the final authority on abortion law. Nothing will actually change for most women in America, because the populations of the states that will not restrict abortion in any way are significantly larger than the populations of the states that might restrict or ban access to abortion. At this point in our history, Roe versus Wade is simply protecting the women in very Republican states, protecting their liberty. And in truth, Roe versus Wade is really only protecting the women in those states who cannot afford to travel to New York or California or Illinois or one of the many other states that will always safely and responsibly provide abortion services. No one rich in Mississippi will be affected by any change in this law. No Republican woman, rich woman in Mississippi Not one Republican rich daughter in Mississippi would ever be affected by the change in the law that the state of Mississippi is asking the court to approve. It would just be economically disadvantaged women in Mississippi who would then find themselves struggling to somehow, somehow come up with the money to be able to travel to another state in the pursuit of of liberty. Justice Sonia Sotomayor made the point about how many Supreme Court justices, including Republican appointed Supreme Court justices, have supported Roe versus Wade over decades and what it will mean if the current Republican Supreme Court justices decide to overturn it. The right of a woman to choose the right of, to control her own body has been clearly set for uh, since Casey and never challenged. You want us to reject that line of viability and adopt something different. Fifteen justices over um, 50 years have, or I should say 30 since Casey, have reaffirmed that basic viability line. Four have said no, two of them members of this court, but 15 justices have said yes, of varying political backgrounds. Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? We, you know, it is amazing. Uh, I mean, she hits the nail on the head. The stench is, but uh, the, the stench has been there. The stench has been there for since Citizens United, since McCutcheon, since all those rulings. The stench has been there. It's been a corporate-owned Supreme Court. And when you talk about a conservative Supreme Court, 
solving issues like gender issues and childbirth issues and abortion issues for the Supreme Court is just, eh, you know, we'll just talk about it. Give them a bone. Uh, the debate isn't about killing a baby. The debate isn't about any of that because the debate is whether we can tell a woman. Let, let's be clear here. From a from a, just a scientific point of view, a child in the womb of a woman, and this is not, I, I, it, look, I have no, no position that I should viably take with respect to what a woman thinks, what she does to her body, etc. But think about this. You are forcing a woman to... A a, a fetus is a parasite, right? It it 100% depends on taking the energy of the mother. Should a woman decide that she doesn't want to do that, that has got to be her choice. Now, folks like to talk about you kill a fetus, you're killing a baby. The truth of the matter is women naturally abort fetuses uh, and blastocysts and all these things throughout their pregnancy, period. None of us have the education. None of us has the knowledge to come out here and say that a fetus is a living human being. Okay, that's number one. Now, if you want to believe that, if you want to believe that a fetus is a human being, by all means, it's a free country. Believe that. Force your wife, whether she wants to or not, if she accidentally gets pregnant, to carry that baby. Force the people under your control, which should be no, none, but, you know, we know the, where the patriarchy lives. Have you, you, you worry about them in your religious entity or wherever you are. But do not impose that economic burden on a woman. And you know what is so ironic more than anything else? All these people that are trying to protect a fetus, when it is time to invest money in the living, when it is time to invest money in those who are already born and need to have access to success, they're never there. They are absolutely never there. They don't want government to do anything positive, but they want government to tell a woman, I will tell you what you can do with your body. You know what I bet? If they said to men, in other words, we cut your th- a piece of your thing off if you impregnate a woman, I bet if you said that, the laws would change. I bet if men could carry babies and it affected their careers, I bet they'll find some other way to talk about it. But you see, in a patriarchal society, where everything is governed by the penis, until we extricate that false patriarchy out of it, We'll continue to get those things. You know, from, I tell you, there's one thing. I grew up a chauvinist. I grew up a sexist. I grew up all those things. But you know what was interesting? Having a daughter. Because I remember telling her when she was young, go to that pastor and ask that pastor, why can't women be pastors too? In her church, the women did most of the work, yet all the men were deacons and, and sporting there, waiting for the women to do things, Right? Like, you know, that's a pastor. Luckily, 
they both, both my wife and my daughter remain in that church. And that is one of the, I'm not a church going guy, but it's a church I love. And I love the people in that church. And the reason I love the people in that church, my wife is a deacon in that church. Women are deacons in that church. Women are preachers in that church. Women are doing everything men do in that church. Equity. Equity. But you know what? When it comes to when it comes to anything else, we know what it's all about. We actually know what it's all about. Georgia Senator, newly elected Senator Rafael Warnock. I mean, he said a piece out there in on the floor of the Senate that everybody needs to listen. And I tell you something, listen to his words. If after having the majority of the Senate, well, again, 50-50 plus the vice president, if we don't accomplish the things that we need to specifically going forward, uh, build back better as well as voter rights, in other words, making sure that we protect against voter suppression, etc., we really don't deserve to have leadership. If we allow the minority party to get their will against the will of the American people, why should the American people put us there? I want you to listen to Warnock, and then we'll take it on the other side. One that lies at the foundation of our democracy, and time and time again, because of a lack of good faith engagement, the rules of the Senate have prevented us from moving that conversation forward. We could not imagine, we could not imagine changing the rules. That is until last week, because last week we did exactly that. Be very clear, last week we changed the rules of the Senate to address another important issue, the economy. This is a step, a change in the Senate rules we haven't been willing to take to save our broken democracy, but one that a bipartisan majority of this chamber thought was necessary in order to keep our economy strong. We changed the rules to protect full faith and credit of the United States government. We've decided we must do it for the economy, but not for the democracy. So, Madam President, I will be honest. This has been a difficult week for me as I've pondered how am I going to vote on this debt ceiling question we're about to take. I feel like I'm being asked to take a road that is a point of moral dissonance for me. Because while I deeply believe that both our democracy and our economy are important, I believe that it is misplaced to change the Senate rules only for the benefit of the economy when the warning lights on our democracy are flashing at the same time. In light of the conniving methods of voter suppression we have seen enacted into law since the January 6th attack on the Capitol, I come to the floor today to share with the people of Georgia and the American people the message that I shared with my colleagues over the weekend and earlier today during our caucus meeting. I said to my Democratic colleagues over the last several days, number one, unfortunately, the vast majority of our Republican friends have made it clear that they have no intention of trying to work with us to address voter suppression or to protect voting rights. We cannot let our Republican friends off the hook for not being equitable governing partners. If we are serious about protecting the right to vote that's under assault right now, here is the truth. 
it will fall to Democrats to do it. And if Democrats alone must raise the debt ceiling, then Democrats alone must raise and repair the ceiling of our democracy. How do we in good conscience justify doing one and not the other? Some of my Democratic colleagues are saying, but what about What about bipartisanship? Isn't that important? I say, of course it is. But here's the thing we must remember. Slavery was bipartisan. Jim Crow segregation was bipartisan. The refusal of women's suffrage was bipartisan. The denial of the basic dignity of members of the LGBTQ community has long been bipartisan. The three-fifths compromise was the creation of a putative national unity at the expense of black people's basic humanity. So when colleagues in this chamber talk to me about bipartisanship, which I believe in, I just have to ask at whose expense? Who is being asked to foot the bill for this bipartisanship? And is liberty itself the cost? I submit that that's a price too high and a bridge too far. To my Democratic colleagues, I say, while it is deeply unfortunate, it is more than apparent that it has been left to us to handle alone the task of safeguarding our democracy. The judgment of history is upon us. Is that prescient or not? Yes, we would love to have bipartisanship, but bipartisanship is not really the answer. And as he points out, remember, slavery was bipartisanship, was bipartisan. Remember, anti-woman legislation was bipartisan. Remember, the three-fifths compromise wasn't bipartisan. It was the inception of the country. So there is no inherent virtue in having bipartisanship when said virtue creates evil. So let's again, let's again to all our brothers and sisters that are Democrats or for any Republican that wants to join in, do the right thing. Kill the filibuster and get the job of the American people done. Jen Psaki did a good job today. She handed Donald Trump's behind to uh, Peter Ducey today, and she did it with class, as usual. I want you to check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. Um, A lot of talk about the first Trump-Biden debate today, but at the second one, in 2020, when roughly 220,000 Americans had already died of COVID, Joe Biden said about Trump, anyone who is responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. Is that still the standard now that more Americans have died under President Biden than President Trump? I think the fundamental question here is, what are you doing to save lives and protect people? And the former president was suggesting people inject bleach. He apparently reportedly didn't even share with people he was going to interact with that he had tested positive for COVID himself. He continued to provide a forum for misinformation, which probably led to people not getting, uh, not taking steps forward to get to protect themselves, to wear masks, to eventually get vaccinated. This president has made the vaccine widely available. He's relied on the health Uh, the advice of his health and medical experts. And he is trying to be a part of solving this crisis, getting the pandemic under control. And I think there's a pretty stark difference between their approaches. Here's the deal. It is true that uh, that there are probably going to be more people dying under uh, Biden with COVID than under Donald Trump. But there's a reason why, of course, because COVID started late in Donald Trump's administration and it's going to probably last through the entire Biden administration. But you know what should have happened? I think what Jen Psaki should have done immediately as soon as he brought that up is like, 
I am trying to save all the people that Donald Trump killed. She, she didn't quite say that. She said, rem- rem- reminded everybody that Trump uh, was actually infected with COVID even as he went for the debate. He was infected with COVID even as he infected a whole lot of people uh, that, that surrounded him. But she needed to come with a little bit more pressure, I think. I mean, she did a good job. But next time, Saki, please say, I am cleaning up the debts that Donald Trump left me. Had Donald Trump deal, dealt with COVID the way President Obama de- dealt with Ebola, the entire world would have been in better shape right now. I mean, there, there are so many things that we can use to just start up cauterizing people's head that Donald Trump, the, the creep that he was, caused the debts of all these people that are dying. This is not on the watch of Biden. This is on the watch of Donald Trump. Today, we have the honor again of speaking to Representative Jasmine Crockett from Texas, District House 100, who is now running for Texas 30, the one and only represent one representative represented by Eddie Bernice Johnson, who endorsed her. Hello, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing fine. I know you've had a hell of a day today. Thank you for being here and spending the time with us today. Have a few questions for you uh, that we want to go forward. Uh, first of all, what got you into the the national race after doing such a hell of a job in the state uh, in the state this year? You know, I, I feel like I wake up every morning asking that same question. <laughs> I know. Um, No, you know, we fought so hard on the state level and all of our fights ended up on the federal level. Um, And right now we are in litigation over so many things that happened on the state level. And we're in that litigation on the federal level. And honestly, our federally elected officials, they have the power to effectuate change, um, not only in this country, but definitely in the state of Texas. And so after working with a congresswoman, on some things, um, you know, she made it clear that she was ready to retire, but that's something she had been saying for at least a decade. Yes. And so, you know, I was like, okay, like I was just listening. Um, this wasn't me asking, this wasn't me trying to move her along. You know, I was happy to defend, defend, defend and be on the defense. And I fought so hard to get my seat that I really didn't know that I wanted to fight again. Um, I knew that it was going to be a packed race because the seat has only been occupied by her since it was um, created. And so for me, I was like, I love my district. My district is just kind of getting into the swing of things with me. And I just was like, I don't want to leave them. Now, obviously, if I live in her district and my district, then, you know, there's a lot of overlap. Right. Um, Not my complete district, but. You know, after you work to build these relationships, it's hard to think, let me start and build new ones and and more. And so I I just didn't know. Um, And I got a call from a supporter of mine and he said, what you need to recognize is you'll at least have an opportunity to be on the offense in Texas. You're going to constantly be on defense. And so if you want to really get the types of bills passed that you really want passed, I can't tell you when you'll be on the offense, but at least things shift on a national level. They don't shift in Texas. And that really stuck with me. And I thought, this is my opportunity to do more than deflect 
but to actually get progressive policies passed. And that was really a turning point for me in deciding to run. Now, you just you just made a statement. You said to get progressive policies passed. Are you going to be running here in Texas and as an unabashed progressive or maybe not those words, but simply (laughs) letting people know what you want to offer them? Right. So, in fact, um, the interview I just did, I was explaining that my record speaks for itself. You know, like no one can come up against my record and act like there's any deficiencies in my record or act like my record is anything less than progressive. And there are people in this race that are running as theoretical progressives, right? Like it's all fun and games until you're really in the game and we don't know how you will really govern. Well, I have governed in a very progressive way. Now, my district itself, we are not uh, Travis County, right? Mm -hmm. So it ain't Austin. Right. (laughs) Um, so in 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 certain words don't necessarily like work, but my policies work. Mm-hmm. So we will focus on my policies because my district loves my policies. Um, but I don't know how they'll feel about certain words, right? So if I'll be going around and knocking on a door and saying I'm a progressive, probably not. No. Um, they actually love to hear that I'm a Democrat. That's right. what they want to hear. They want to hear that I'm a Democrat. And it's it's really um, it's really kind of a I would say an age thing, so to speak. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's a generational thing. Um, my district, the core voters are going to be older African-Americans. They don't know nothing about what a progressive is. Mm-hmm. They know what a Democrat is. And that's what they want to hear. And so I tell them I'm a Democrat, which I am. And then I talk to them about the the work that I think is important and those those things are actually progressive things. Right. Um, So I don't know that I'll be like, Oh, progressive, 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 which we have all these people in my race that are running and they're like progressive, progressive, progressive. And there's somebody that definitely is to the right. (laughs) And so that person wants to kind of use that to kind of scare some people. So um, I'm going to run as Jasmine, who's a Democrat. um, And I'll talk to you about my policies. Now, I think you have the most name recognition right now based on and, and not only that, but you have the real important endorsement. Now, how how was your district redrawn with the uh, new gerrymandered state of Texas? Did, did they did they pack more people in your district What did, in, in District 30 or what did they do? Yeah. So District 30 was um, the most unchanged district in the state. OK. Um, and even though that was the case, they definitely used district 30 to do some illegal nonsense. Um, So to the West of district 30 is district six. Mm -hmm. That's a district that Trump only carried by three points. And my classmate, uh, Jake Elsey actually won that seat in a special election over the summer. And so that seat was so tight in a real election. It may have been lost. Um, Special election is a little different, but in a regular election, it potentially was going to be lost. And so what they did is it was only three counties uh, within it. Um, You had Tarrant County, Ellis County and Navarro County. And now there's somewhere between seven and nine counties. So they really Um, picked out the people. Oh, man. And what they did is um, in the very diverse portion of Tarrant County, they decided to cut those people up. So they left a few people in there. They put some of the people over and they took about 50,000 of the people and put them over into Eddie Bernice Johnson's seat. And then what they did is on the eastern side of the district, they took those minorities 
and brought Colin Allred, who had never gone south of 30. Right. He had never gone south of 30. And they took Colin Allred's district and they drug him down and they had him grab up those minorities um, on the eastern side of the district. So they used the district, right? Mm-hmm. The district was overpopulated by approximately 30,000 people. So all she really needed to do was shed. She didn't need to get new people. She just right, needed right. to get rid of some of And they knew where they right. want to put those people. Yeah, exactly. So. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Yeah. Well, uh, let's go ahead before we move on to policy and ask about uh, how did you win her endorsement that quickly? Because it seems to me like what that's going to do is that's going to freeze out a whole lot of people, especially if you have a talking about a whole lot of older people in there. She has a character in that district. So it's, it's hard to believe that a lot of the people aren't going to follow her, follow her lead, if you will. Oh, yeah. I, I think that um, it's the most powerful endorsement that one could have mm-hmm. is to have um, someone that, you know, has been elected or in some form of um, public service for the last 50 years. So, I mean, there are people that, I mean, they've been voting for her their entire lives. Right. And they trust her. And so it's it's absolutely going to be paramount. But I'll tell you that I earned her endorsement by doing the work. Um, you know, there, there have been people for years calling her, asking her, you know, when are you going to retire? Will you endorse me? I can tell you uh, that I never asked her to endorse me. Not once. Um, we didn't really talk about me potentially. She, there were a few conversations where she said, oh, you know, you know, when you go to Congress one day, like she would say things, but I never said those things. Um, these are things that, that she said and people don't know how hard she works. And so while most people don't stream the House floor, don't stream committee meetings, she did. Mm-hmm. So here it is. She would stream and see what was going on in the Texas House. And so um, she watched me. I mean, knows to me, you never know who's you never know who's watching. You never know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I think that there were those people that thought that this this was a superficial endorsement. Right. That this was about the fact that I was the young thing that was on TV. And those are people that don't know her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, She is 50 years in the game because she is politically savvy. And so the real story is that she watched me um, and she asked people about me and we work together in redistricting. And so she was able to better understand how I think, how hard I work. Um, and, and that's what mattered most to her. She said she didn't want anybody that looked at this and didn't think that it was a job. They needed to understand that this was real work. And she even mentioned that when I ran for this seat, everyone was against me. And she said, and I saw that you work to get the people. And that's the only only thing that matters is the people. And so she even brought up that the fact that I was able to overcome all of the the opposition and to win. And I won only because of the people, not because of money, not because of big names, but because I did the work. Well, I mean, I think anybody who's watched you over the last year alone, you're a freshman in the state house. And I think uh, being a leader as a freshman in the first house speaks a lot. You did a whole lot when you went out there to Washington to keep a lot of them folks together. And I think you went ahead, if I remember correctly, you led the pack. You went ahead of everybody else before they got to Washington, D.C., right? I was ahead of everyone, but uh, 
that was so I could break the news, but that's a whole other issue. But yeah, yeah. I, I remember that. I remember that whole story. But anyhow, let's talk policy. Um, what is Jasmine Crockett going to bring as as uh, Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett uh, to the House? Uh, first of all, we need the youth. Two, we have some other stuff that we need to make sure of. So let me hear it. Yeah. So um, you know, I think I'm going to bring a lot of what I brought to the to the state house, right? Um, I filed more marijuana bills than anybody else. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, no one would necessarily have to file those bills if we could get this passed on a federal level. So that's definitely going to be something that I'll be um, very active in because when you look at the numbers of who's being incarcerated and you look at the numbers of who's becoming millionaires and billionaires, um, it's, it's a problem. And so it's something that I'm very passionate about from a criminal justice reform stance, from a systemic, um, you know, uh, issue stance, from from kind of inequity stance overall. I think that um, we need to to clear up a lot of the missteps and a lot of the harm and hurt that's been caused um, in this country. Um, due to the over policing and over incarceration of minorities when it comes to um, marijuana. So I'll definitely be leading the way on marijuana policies Um, as a as a civil rights lawyer. um, This is where I really get to actually get into things like qualified immunity. Um, On the state level, I was trying to minimize the number of contacts that people would have with law enforcement in general and make it to where people didn't necessarily go to jail for a low level nonviolent um, you know, misdemeanors and even certain felonies, right. Um, to minimize how many contacts we had. Right. And so that was like a backdoor way of trying to get at some of the, um, police reforms. And so this is an opportunity to kind of deal with them head on. Um, this is an opportunity for us to actually start talking about how do we, um, create this national database so that we fully understand who the bad guys are, right? Which bad cops are out there instead of just letting them go from one agency to another. Um, and so, you know, those are things that have always been me. Um, the things that I never thought that I would have to fight, the things that are probably um, leading issues for me at this moment have to do with voting rights, um, which is our very democracy, right? Uh, it's something I feel like I've sound like a broken record on um, because I've been screaming and yelling from the top of my lungs about it. And, you know, I want to see what are the creative ways that we can maybe get something passed because right now doing it head on with having the majorities hasn't worked. Right. So I want to learn all of the rules and the nuances on the federal level and figure out if there's a way I can start sneaking things into certain things, right? Like, can I add something to a bill? Like, you know, figuring out how to get over the parliamentarian, the parliamentarian um, caused the issue for people today, right? And so, you know, those are things that you learn on the house level, like, or the, the state level, and just kind of figuring that out on the federal level so that we can start getting some kind of relief. Is there a way to tack this to any money, right? Like, I want to know these things. Like, if you don't do this, can I like keep some of your money? Like, all those kinds of things. Obviously, um, you can't talk about voting rights without talking about redistricting. It's all kind of tied in. I want to expand the court um, because, frankly, we had a seat that was stolen or two. And the way that this court is operating is less than um, optimal as far as everything that we know about. Operating politically. Yeah. Not as a yeah. court. Politically. 
exactly. Um, so, you know, I want to expand the court. I want to make sure that we work on repo rights. Right. Um, so I was really excited to see that the FDA approved kind of this national, um, uh, ability to, to get an abortion pill without actually having to walk in and do an appointment. Um, it'll be interesting because I, I want to read through all of it and compare it to the legislation that went through during the special session that nobody talks about because we've been so stuck on the first bill, but that was about uh, limiting the number of weeks in which someone could actually receive abortion pills um, through the mail. So I think it can't be more than seven weeks or something. So I want to read through kind of the two and see how they mesh up. Um, it's obviously difficult to enforce the Texas law. So you know, who knows what you're getting in the mail and why, right? Um, and when. So, you know, that'll be kind of that part. So I, I think we'll be in decent shape. So I'm I'm happy, but that was a workaround. That was a workaround for a country that uh, has a government that's failing them. Um, and so I, those are the things that I think I'll be tasked with is, is figuring out these workarounds to make sure that we are doing more protecting than harming. Let me tell you one thing. Um, uh, you mentioned about being able to do things on the federal level. One of the reasons that uh, we can't get things on the federal level is that we don't have enough people who are unabashedly aggressive in the policies they support and know exactly how to go against the opposition uh, without fear. Yeah. And one of the things I think you are admired for throughout the country and you know why, why the news media seem to be pulling you over all of the times is because that is the fact that you're not scared to really confront the way many Democrats seem to be fearful in the way they confront the right. Um, I hope, I hope that we get more uh, Jasmine Crockett's running because what we need in 2022 is a hell of a lot more. Joe Manchin said something that, that, that got to me and he said the following, I want to hear your response about it. He said, if, and I know you went and you met with him as well, but he said, um, if, if progressives want their policies, elect more progressives. Interestingly, of those 50 senators, 48 senators want the, uh, the Build Back Better bill and wants all the bills that, you know, the progressives uh, so far in, in Congress are supporting. So he's saying near 50% is not enough. So we need a hell of a lot more of the Jasmine Crockett. So tell me what you think about that. And how are you going to look? You're let, let me first say you're going to win your seat. Um, <laughs> and by the way, the last person who said the last person I told that to was uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when I interviewed her at, at um, Netroots Nation. And she smiled with her innocent self when she was four years back. That was four years back. <laughs> and uh, she didn't only win, but she beat the guy who was supposed to be Speaker of the House, replacing Nancy Pelosi. So what I'm telling you, Jasmine, is you're going to be winning the, the, the House district. What do you think about bringing more progressives along with you? Yeah, so I think we've got a shot. Um, you know, it's crazy to say something like that in Texas, but I do. I think that we've got a shot. I think Greg Kassar um, is really making waves. And I think that he's doing a, a great job. I think that the district he's running in is the perfect district for um, his personality. And I think he will probably be the most outspoken. I really do. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Jessica Cisneros, um, you know, she's running, <laughs> yes, she's running against, you know, Henry Cuellar and 
it's interesting because that's a that that's a district that is down at the border, you know, and, and so it's the border districts that things get tricky down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it'll I'll be interested to see because obviously the lines changed as well. Right. And so there are definitely people that have never met Quayar, mm-hmm. right? Like they're new people. And so it'll be interesting, but it, it gets tricky. So um, I've not been down to see kind of how Jessica runs like on the ground. Right. Um, because that area is a lot more conservative, right? Like it's a cultural, it's a Latino cultural yeah. thing. And yeah. I, yesterday I interviewed uh, Manuel Pastor uh, from uh, University of uh, California, Southern, University of Southern California, who expressed how progressives need to reach um, Latinos, you know, the conservative Latinos that you're talking about, because they're uh, socially conservative, but very much want all the progressive, what progressives have to offer. So I hope, I hope uh, your friends really looking into that type of campaigning down there. Yeah. So um, it'll be interesting because I don't know how she's going to deal with that. You know, it's, it's been really um, an interesting time kind of talking to the progressive orgs mm-hmm. as I'm going through this, because I'm basically like, chill out guys. Like you have my record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think another article came out today um, I, that I'm trying to read. I got a Google alert from San Antonio express. That was like, it called, you know, Greg, a democratic socialist. And then it said, you know, the headline was like democratic socialist, Greg Kassar and like, the most liberal um, member of the Texas house. Right. Like there's an article that talks about the two of us. Right. And so I'm like, it's anybody can tell you what you want to hear. Right. Which happens. Like they say one thing and they do another. Um, But at the end of the day, it is about how they govern. And so, so my big deal is the proof is in the pudding. But I know my district better than somebody from the outside. Right. I know what works in my district. And so, um, you know, it'll be interesting. And I'm hoping that Jessica knows her district um, because, you know, a lot of the the issues that, you know, we have kind of generally with like some of the votes have to do with, you know, not supporting supporting like repro rights. Right. Right. Like that's a but down there. you know, it probably plays well. I mean, we just lost a colleague in the house who was down, um, down South and he became a Republican and Trump immediately endorsed him. And he also, he was a Democrat, but he had voted with the Republicans on guns. He voted with the Republicans when it came to repro issues, like he was voting against us. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's about knowing your districts because at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to represent your area, you got to represent your area. Exactly. So, right. so I think that getting more progressives is possible. I just think it's about how we package this and how we That's sell the it. Magic. That's yeah. I think magic. Yeah. Because we're still Texas and, you know, all it takes is Republicans kind of jumping on a bandwagon and making something seem like it's so scary and ridiculous. And then we're out of there and, and we don't accomplish our goals. So I, I think we need to package things and allow like real progressives to have an actual track record to let them package themselves in the way that works for their district. 
Well, you're absolutely right. And I, I like what you said about telling progressives at times they need to know when to chill. And that's uh, some of what we work on. Well, anyway, Representative Crockett, please, uh, last question that I always ask, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I guess uh, ask me if I'm saying, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a, it's a constant struggle, um, you know, just to kind of do what, what really I think every public servant should do, which is really just fight for the people. Right. And, and this idea that we have people in office that ignore how they got there, ignore their, their responsibility, um, to the people. And so I've become frustrated with the federal government. I think, a good vast majority of like same people in this country are frustrated. And I would just say that more real people need to consider kind of making the sacrifice and running for office. Um, I think you should do your background and make sure you know what the office does and, and uh, make sure you study and get ready. But I, I think that's what we need. I think we need to move beyond kind of this, cronyism that is crippling us. Jasmine Crockett, state representative, District 100, now running for candidate for Congressional District 30. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politicsunright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That's it, folks. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Unright, and you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people.